All right, I hope you have a Bible this morning. If not, grab one on the seat in front of you or next to you. I'd like you to open it to Exodus chapter 3. Last week we looked at Exodus 3, verses 1 to 6. And as I mapped out this sermon series, I really wanted to look at Exodus 3, chapter 1, all the way through Exodus 4, 17, but that was too long. So I hived off the first six verses and saved the rest for this morning. So we're going to look at Exodus 3, 7 through 4, 17. Last week we talked about God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. This week we pick up with the real conversation between God and Moses. And if I could just summarize it, not to, not to spoil the story for you if you're not familiar with it, but just to sort of a, a fly-over-the-top summary is God telling Moses what his plan is and Moses telling God his plan stinks and he needs a new plan. That's the gist of the passage. And in the middle of that is the famous line where God says to Moses, you go back and tell the people I am has sent you. And that's the first thing on your notes that I want to point out to you is that we should approach Exodus 3, 14 and 15 with fear and trembling. These are the verses where God says to Moses, you go back and you say I am has sent you. Scholars look at this. It's all caps in many translations, and they call it the Tetragrammaton. It's the four-letter word, Y-H-W-H. That's the English letters of what we read in the Hebrew. No one is exactly certain or sure of how that was supposed to be pronounced or is supposed to be pronounced. Anyone who tells you they know exactly uh, how it's supposed to be pronounced is full of it. Older translations use Jehovah. Newer translations tend to use, uh, at least one newer translation uses Yahweh, and what most translations do is they follow Jewish practice, and they don't even translate it, they just substitute the word Adonai, which in English is Lord, and then they put it in all caps so that you understand that this is God's name. And so you'll see God's name appear like this throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And the point is not to figure out exactly how you pronounce, uh, pronounce it or exactly what the, the pin down definition is, but as the Ten Commandments say, the point is to use God's name with respect and to be certain that you don't take God's name in vain. A couple of more details before we read this long passage. Moses is going to show some reluctance here to do what God wants him to do. And there's a lot of different takes on that, but I just think that part of his reluctance is rooted in his previous attempt to deliver the people from slavery. And that goes all the way back to Acts 7.25, should say forward to Acts 7.25. There's a man named Stephen. He's giving this speech before he's martyred. He doesn't know that he's about to be martyred, but he's giving this big speech summarizing the Old Testament. And one of the things he says in Acts 7.25 is, when Moses struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, he thought the people would look at that and realize that God was giving them deliverance or giving them salvation at his hand, but the people didn't understand that. So in Moses' mind, just kind of remember this, he's tried this once. He's tried to deliver the people from slavery once before. From our perspective, we look at that incident and we say, well, it wasn't the right time and it certainly wasn't the right way. God wasn't going to deliver his people through Moses' power. He was going to deliver his people through God's power, through his power. From Moses' perspective, though, he looked back on that moment as a colossal failure. As I tried to do it 
And the people didn't follow. They didn't realize what God was doing through me or what he thought God was doing through him. So we can understand some of his hesitancy, but it certainly doesn't let him off the hook for what we're about to read. I do want to mention Exodus 4.27. That's not a verse that we're going to read. It comes a few verses after the end of where we're going to cut off in chapter 4. And I just want to point out to you that it explains to us that God was the one who told Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. In the passage that we're going to read, if you only looked at that, you would see God saying, Aaron is on his way to meet you. And you sort of wonder, how did Aaron know that he was supposed to go out and meet Moses in the wilderness all of a sudden? And if you just keep reading a few verses, you find out that God was the one who sent him. Now, this is the big idea of the passage. It's a beautiful passage that we're about to read. And the big idea is pretty simple. The plans of God are set and certain. God's plans are set And they are certain. And God uses human beings to accomplish those plans. Does he need to use human beings? Of course not. But in his providence, in his sovereignty, he chooses to bring about his set and his certain plans through human beings. And we see that play out as God is talking about sending Moses. Does he need Moses to accomplish this set and certain plan that he predicted hundreds of years earlier? Does he need Moses to get the people out of Egypt? Of course he doesn't. But in his providence and in his sovereignty, he decides that he's going to use Moses. Look at this quote from A.W. Pink. I'm going to share two quotes with you this morning, one now and one at the end. Pink says, everything is definitely determined. He's talking about this passage right here that we're about to read. Everything's definitely determined. There is no possibility of the divine purpose failing. In other words, what God's about to lay out to Moses, there's no, I think this is how it's going to go. There's no, well, this is what I'm planning, and we're going to have sort of an audible on reserve. If we need a a contingency plan, we're going to fall back to this. It's just God saying, this is exactly how it's going to go. This is how it's going to happen. His plans are set, and they're certain, to which we tend to sit back and say, well, then why why does he need us? Why does anything that we do matter? And this passage just sort of ropes you back in and says, no, 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 no. His plans are set and they are certain and he uses human beings to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And so let's read the passage. This is a long passage. This is longer than what we normally read on a Sunday morning, but I want you to stick with me. Exodus 3, 7, and we're going to read all the way to 4, 17. The scripture says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites." And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered back, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. It's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we pause to think about this ancient text, this ancient story of Moses talking to you, Father, help us to have understanding and wisdom. Help us to see truth about how we ought to relate to you. Father, help us to see truth this morning about who you are and to see why it matters and why it's important and ultimately how it it points us forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite things to see on the internet, you know there's a lot of junk on the internet, but one of the things I love to watch are videos of soldiers coming home from war. And sometimes they surprise their family, sometimes the family knows that there's coming. Uh, There's a family in our church, the Sunderlands. I asked them if I could put a picture up. I'm not going to show you the video, but uh, their son Peter came home a few months back from Afghanistan, and they had this video. It was such a cool video. Had all of these families gathered in a military hangar, and they were waiting, and they were excited, and they opened the big doors at the end, and the soldiers just, I think, straight off the plane, marched right in, and everyone was cheering and celebrating and clapping, and they sort of went through a little bit of ritual or routine, and then they just turned everybody loose to go down and find your son or your daughter and to hug them. And you watch those videos And you see people who are excited, people who have been waiting for something, anticipating something, longing for something, and then it finally happens, and you are probably just like me, you you watch those videos or you see the pictures, and you just love to see the joy that people express. Moses and God's people have been waiting for something for a long time. They've been praying about it. They've been talking to God about it, not just for a few months or a few years, but for centuries. For hundreds of years, God's people knew this promise that God made to Abraham, that you will go down to Egypt, you will be slaves in a foreign country, and I will bring you out with powerful signs, and I will bring you back to this land. They knew the promises of God, and they knew that that timeline, that 400-year clock was just about up. And there's a part of you that sort of expects Moses, the shepherd, when God shows up in this bush that's burning and says, it's time, we're going to get them out, you almost expect Moses to like jump up and down. Like, really? It's time? We've been waiting for this. We've been praying about it. We knew it was getting close. And you're telling me that I get to go back? I get to go back and see all the signs that you promised to Abraham you're going to do to bring the people out. It's really time and I really get to go. You almost expect just like bubbling over excitement. And instead what you find is a man who just a few verses earlier was afraid to look at God 
has an argument with God and doesn't want anything to do with God's plan. In fact, as you read the story, you may have noticed he raises five objections. And some Bible scholars say some of them aren't objections. Some of them are just questions. But I think every last one of them is an objection. And I think by the time you get to the end of it, you see Moses' heart and that he really just doesn't want to have anything to do with this plan. So let's just walk through the objections and the questions. The first one is in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? I guess there's a part of us that can sort of commend Moses here and say, Moses had, there's a, a level of humility that may be right in Moses asking this question. Who am I to bring the people out? I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. And you can look at that and you can say, you know, he should have, he should have felt a little bit inadequate for the task that God had set before him. And you can say, well, that, that wasn't really an objection. I think that that was a good question. And just from a human level, you can certainly look at Moses and say, 40 years of shepherding sheep in the wilderness had probably taken its toll on him. He's an 80-year-old man at this point. And it's just a little bit comical to him that an 80-year-old shepherd from Midian is going to go confront the most powerful man in the world. Like, I don't know what you think of as a lowly profession, but just sort of picture that in your brain and put someone elderly in that position at the end of their life, seemingly, and say, that's the person that God's going to use to confront the most powerful person on the planet. It's a little bit comical. Moses is an old man. All that get up and go he had when he is 40 has got up and went by the time he's 80. And he says, who, who am I to go? There's something in this that I guess is commendable. But I want you to understand that having humility and not trusting yourself is only a good thing if it moves you to have trust in God. And at this point in the conversation, Moses is a lot like most of us. He has the, the humility part down, at least seemingly so. But his focus is not at all shifted towards trusting in God and believing that God can do the impossible. He's just sort of stuck in this, I'm not capable. I'm not good enough. I'm not up to the task. You know, there's a lot of people in churches that walk around and they sort of play this Moses complex of, well, you know, you could find someone more qualified to do that job. Or, I don't know how good I would really be at doing that particular thing. And who am I to serve in that way? And, you know, on the outside, it looks real humble. Like you're just walking around thinking you're a worm. But at the heart of it, you say there's no trust in God to use you. No trust in God to to use you for a good purpose in a good end. And that's where Moses is at in this first question. Yes, there's a, a level of humility, but that humility has not moved him to actually be a man who trusts in God. Second question is in verse 13. Moses said to God, If I come, and if you like to make notes in your Bible, you should just circle the first word in that question. If. If I come to the people of Israel... And say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? My question is, why start this question with if? 
as if there's any possibility that it might not happen. In Moses' mind, he's starting off, he's asked his first question, who am I? I don't know if I'm really good enough. And then he turns around and it's, well, look, if I, if I do this, if I agree to this, look, he's going to agree to it. There's no question of Moses doing it at this point. Not in God's mind and shouldn't be in our minds. But in Moses' mind, it's still sort of, eh, I don't know. If I go, hypothetically, let's just sort of walk through this. If I were to do this and they ask me this question about your name, what am I supposed to say to them? Now look, I read pages and pages and pages of commentary on this this last week saying, why did Moses want to know God's name? Did he not know it before? Was he looking for some sort of password? Was he really just trying to know God on a deeper level? What in the world is going going on here? I'm just going to come back to the word if, and I'm just going to tell you his heart is not in the right place. There should be no if about it. There should be no mental category in Moses' mind that I may not do what God's called me to do. Just call Jonah and ask Jonah what happens when you don't do what God calls you to do. In the end, you're going to do it. But in Moses' mind, he's sort of stuck on this, eh, I don't know. If I was to do it, and this question came up, what would I say? And I think it reveals something about his heart. He's looking for wiggle room, and he's looking for a way out, which brings us to the next objection where I really think things get ridiculous at this one. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. He just looks God in the face, as it were, and he says, God, they're not going to believe me. Do you remember what God said back in chapter 3, verse 18? Just look over there. God says this. It's kind of important. He says, Gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18. They will listen to your voice. You go say this, and they will listen to you. That's straight from the mouth of God to Moses. And what does he say just a few verses later? Chapter 4, verse 1. God, they will not listen to me. You can sympathize with Moses, right? He's an 80-year-old shepherd who hasn't been in Egypt for four decades And he's just kind of playing this through in his mind. You know he's playing it through as a hypothetical because he's already asked the if question, if I go. And he's running it through and he's thinking, okay, so now I have an answer to that one question. But you really expect me, an 80-year-old shepherd from Midian, to walk into Egypt to these people that really wanted nothing to do with me the last time I was there. And you want me to tell them that I was out in the middle of nowhere and that God appeared to me in a bush that was on fire that didn't burn. That's the story you want me to go back with. Moses doesn't believe his own story. He certainly doesn't expect the people to believe it. And so again, the man who was afraid to look at God finds himself arguing with God. God said, they will listen to you. And Moses says to God, they will not listen. 
Objection number four. Chapter four, verse 10. O my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Literally what he says, I like this translation a little bit better, is I have a heavy mouth. God, I have a heavy mouth. And I'm just not, I'm not going to be able to do it. You've got the wrong guy. And it's interesting. He says, you know what he says? He says, I'm slow of speech and tongue in the past. Right? In the past, that's true. It's like he's blaming God for the way that he made him. You made me this way. I've always been this way, he says. Or since you have appeared to me. Like in the last five minutes, you haven't fixed this problem. What has taken you so long? I have a heavy mouth in the past, and right now you haven't fixed it. And you want me to go back. I'll tell you what's really interesting is a little tidbit again. I'm going back to Acts chapter 7. Look what you read in Acts 7. This is inspired New Testament commentary on this story. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And Moses says, yeah, but I have a heavy mouth. The problem is not that he has a heavy mouth. The problem is not that he's just hesitant to go back. He's just looking for a way out. The problem is not a speech problem. I read all sorts of explanations. I read one scholar said, I'll I'll list these off to you. One scholar said, well, maybe Moses was shy. The next one said, well, maybe he failed rhetoric in Egypt in his schooling, which I don't think Acts 7.22 sounds like a guy who failed rhetoric. Another guy said he maybe had a speech impediment, like a lisp, and he was self-conscious about that. The Septuagint Ancient tradition, this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, says that he stuttered. He had a stuttering problem, and he was conscious about that. One scholar even said, you might like this, it had been 40 years since he lived in Egypt, and his Egyptian was rusty. He, wasn't, you know, he didn't have Rosetta Stone on his phone, and he couldn't just pull it up and brush up on his Egyptian, and he's thinking, I, I won't be, even be able to talk to these people. This is a waste of time. I don't think it's a speech problem at all. I think it's an obedience problem. And I think he's just looking for a way out. And he says, God, I have this, have this heavy mouth, and it would be better if I didn't go. And then it ends in chapter 4, verse 13, the last excuse. This is pretty direct. He says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I know that you made a promise to Abraham. 400 years ago that this is what was going to happen and I know the people are being oppressed and persecuted and they're suffering greatly and I know you've promised to bring them out with great power and signs and wonders and it's going to be awesome and you're going to bring them back to a land I know all of that I just don't want anything to do with it when you look at Moses in this passage He really doesn't fit the bill of the next leader of Israel, does he? Like, he's arguing with God. He's he's questioning God. He's just flat out asking God to get someone else to do it. And if you don't know the end of the story, you may be reading through the book of Exodus, if you're reading through for the first time, thinking to yourself, you need to find a different dude. Because this guy is not going to cut it. This guy is not up to the task of leading 
these hundreds of thousands of people out into the wilderness and into the promised land. Moses is not the guy. Here's the good news, and this is gospel truth, whether you see it in Moses' life or whether you see it in our lives. Are you ready? God can use a crooked stick and hit a straight shot. I mean, Moses is, is just, he's pathetic in this passage. There's some things Moses is going to do later where we're going to pat him on the back and we're going to say, you're a man of faith. That was awesome. I can't believe you stood up in that way and you believed. But at this point, we just got to be honest and facts are facts. And you say, how do you look at God in the face and ask him to send someone else? I don't want to go and I don't want to be used by you in a great and awesome in a miraculous way. If you're reading through the passage for the first time, you just sort of wonder, who is God going to use? Here's the second quote from Pink I want to share with you. He says, if God were to wait until he found a human instrument that was worthy or fit to be used by him, he would go on waiting until the end of time. God is sovereign in this, as in everything. The truth is that God uses whom he pleases. And everything that God laid out in this passage, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, none of it is contingent on Moses. Thank God. None of it depends on how faithful Moses is going to be. And God can take a crooked stick like Moses or like me or like you, and he can hit a straight shot with it. And he's going to use Moses in spite of Moses to accomplish his plan and his purpose for Israel that is set And that is certain. And all along the way, as Moses is raising these objections, God answers him. He engages in conversation with Moses. He actually talks to him. And his response to Moses reveal his character. This is the last little section we're going to talk about. All along the way, he's responding to Moses. And everything he says to Moses reveals his character. This, to me, is the most beautiful part of the whole passage. We look at Moses and we say, what a goober. But think about this. Every time Moses raises an objection or asks a question, God comes back and he says one of two things to Moses. Okay, One of two things. Either he says, I'm going to be with you, or he says, Moses, I can handle it. I'm going to be with you and I can handle it. Do you find that fascinating? Not once does God come back to Moses and say, Moses, you're being too hard on yourself. Moses, you need to get up out of the gutter. Moses, you are really a top-notch guy. He, He never once says, Moses, I've put you as a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years to teach you humility and to teach you how to care for people. You know where to get water when you bring the people out in this same place. You're the perfect guy. You were raised in Egypt. You're a Hebrew. You're the perfect person for the job, Moses. He doesn't say any of that. Not a word of it. That's what a lot of preaching and and Bible teaching amounts to today. I don't know if you've realized that. You can find popular, sort of engaging, charismatic people online. You can find them in churches close by, and you can go. And the gist of what they're going to say to you is, you can do it. You can do it. You have potential. You're great. You're the best. I promise you can do it. 
And I just think it's fascinating that when Moses is throwing this fake pity party, he really wants nothing to do with it. So it's faux humility. It's fake humility. God not one time responds back and tries to puff Moses up. All he says is, I'm going to be with you, and I can handle it. And all along the way, he continues to reveal his character to Moses. And the beauty of it is that when you get to the end, Moses is going to go to Egypt, but he's not going to go trusting in his rhetoric or his Egyptian or his charisma or his leadership skills or any of these other things. He's going to go trusting in God. And what a tragedy that so many people sit in churches today and they get this steady diet of you can do it, you're the best, you're a superhero, you have all the potential in the world, you're valuable. That's all they ever hear. And they leave trusting in themselves, if truth be told, rather than in God. And God looks at Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to be with you. And I'm up for the task. And he tells Moses and he shows Moses some very important things about his character. And I want you to see these as we finish. The first thing he wants Moses to know is that he's omniscient. God is omniscient. That means he is all-knowing. He knows everything. Frontwards, backwards, past, present, future. He knows all of it. Look at Exodus 3.7. We saw this at the end of chapter 2. We see it again here. Exodus 3.7. The Lord said... I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry, and I know their sufferings. He says it again down in verse 9. He says, says, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. He's saying, Moses, every reality on the ground right now, I know all about it. I know what's going on. None of it has escaped my eye. None of it has escaped my ear. I'm aware of all of it. Not only is he aware of everything going on in the present, but he's aware of everything that's going to happen in the future. He lays it all out for Moses. He says, look, you're going to go here, and Pharaoh's not going to let you go. I know that. It's not going to be a surprise. Don't start wringing your hands and panicking when Pharaoh says no. He's not going to let you go. He knows it. He's omniscient. He knows that Israel will plunder the people. You're not going to go out empty-handed. I know exactly how it's going to work out. You're going to ask your neighbor for their jewelry. They're just going to turn it over to you, and then you're leaving. I know exactly how it's going to happen, even down to the detail of Aaron going out. And we connect verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 27. You say, look, God sent Aaron to meet Moses before he even had the conversation with Moses. Why did he send Aaron? Because he knows Moses is going to panic, and he knows Moses is going to argue. And the end of the conversation wraps it all up nicely and neatly and says, look, if you're going to be a coward, Aaron will go with you, and he can do all the talking. None of it surprises God. He knows all of it. He's omniscient. Second, he's self-existent. We talked about this last week with this bush that was on fire, but it did not burn up. God needs no fire. He needs no fuel. He needs no kindling. He can simply exist as fire. He can manifest himself as fire, and he's not dependent on natural elements to burn. You see the same thing when Moses says, what am I supposed to tell them if they ask me your name? And God's reply is, you tell them that I am sent you. 
I am that I am. I'm dependent on nobody. I need nothing. There's nothing you can do for me that will make me more God. There's nothing that can ever be taken away from me. I'm not dependent on you for anything. I need nothing. I simply am that I am. He's self-existent. Third, he's omnipotent. It means he's all-powerful. All of these ideas similar to what we saw last week at the first part of chapter 3, which shouldn't surprise you. You see God's power in the passage we read when God controls a piece of wood to turn into a snake and back to wood again. You see it where God is all-powerful, able to do all things, where Moses puts his hand in his cloak and he brings it out and it's leprous and he puts it in and out again and he's healed. You see God able to do all things when Moses is going to take water from the Nile and pour it out and it's going to become blood. You see God's power even as he's responding to Moses' objection in chapter 4 where he says, I'm in control of deafness and muteness and blindness and seeing and hearing and all of it. I'm in control of all of those things. I am all powerful. He wants Moses to rest in his omnipotence. You even see it in chapter 4, verse 21, if you just want to jump ahead a few verses from where we stopped. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. His power even extends over Pharaoh's heart and his decisions. There's no limit to it. There's no limit to his knowledge. There's no limit to his power. He's completely self-existent. He needs nothing for Moses. At which point you say, remind me why we need Moses in this story? Like, he's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He knows everything, beginning, end, future, back ways, front ways, all of it. He's self-existent. He doesn't need anything from anyone. And then we come in with this last idea. Number four, God is relational. He's relational. He's patient with Moses. In mystery of mysteries, he actually has a conversation with Moses. And he allows Moses to object to a degree. And he answers his questions and he responds to his objections. It reminds me of what we talked about last week when C.S. Lewis described his own conversion and he says, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. I wasn't thrilled with it. And he says, how amazing is the divine humility that will accept a reluctant convert? Even on terms like that. You certainly see reluctance on Moses' part. He's not jumping with joy that God wants to engage him and use him. He's just sort of being dragged along like a child kicking and screaming. You realize that this is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? It's certainly not that we, as sinful people, sort of put our collective heads together and said, you know, we should, we should reconnect with God. We've offended Him, and we should reach out, sort of extend the olive branch, and try to make things right. That's not what Christmas is about at all. Christmas is about God sending Jesus while we were still sinners, kicking and screaming and acting exactly like Moses, not wanting anything to do with God, just sort of saying, God, why don't you find somebody else? And the divine humility that we see on display at Christmas is that God comes to people who aren't even interested in having a relationship with him. 
We celebrate at Christmas the birth of Jesus, not some kind of sage, not some kind of prophet, not some kind of great moral teacher, but the birth, mystery of all mysteries, of the great I am. That's exactly what we read in John chapter 8. Look at this verse from John 8. Jesus told the religious establishment, he's debating and he's talking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus had read the book of Exodus. He knew exactly what he was saying. And he knew that the men he was talking to had read the book of Exodus. And he was hoping they would connect the dots. And he's saying to them, look, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God who appeared to Moses in that fiery bush that burned but wasn't consumed, it's me, the one standing right in front of you, right in your midst. When Jesus says, I am, their heads just almost explode. They can't imagine somebody having the nerve and the gall to utter such blasphemy and irony of ironies It was true. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The birth of the great I am as a human being to reconcile us to God. And you may listen to that and you may say, you know, that's just a lot of doctrinal gobbledygook. Like, can we just have Jesus and baby Jesus and feel sentimental and it's all good and, and just get on with it? But listen to what Jesus said just a few verses earlier in John 8. He said, you're from below and I'm from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's way more than just doctrinal gobbledygook and theological jargon. This is Jesus himself saying, The message of Christmas is that God has come to be with man and to rescue man, to die for the sins of men and women and boys and girls. And you have two choices at Christmas. You can just sort of opt for the sentimental, all the trappings that our culture throws at Christmas, all the silliness and all the stuff, and you can have the warm fuzzies and just roll on into 2018 as if it's all good. Or you can say, no, 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 no. Christmas is about Jesus. It's about God being a relational God, pursuing a relationship with us when we were not pursuing a relationship with him. And you can believe the truth about Jesus, that he is who he said he was. He is the great I am. He's the same God who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses. The same one that rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And you can believe that and have life. True life. Or you can have the sentimental stuff. My challenge for you as we enter the Christmas season and we sing Christmas carols and we put the trees on the stage is that you don't fall for the trap of just all of the stuff that comes with Christmas, but that you see the beauty of it. And that while we were begging God to find someone else, send someone else, go somewhere else, He humbled himself. He was born as a baby. And he died on a cross for our sins. So that we could be reconciled to him and have a relationship with him. And I pray that you know Jesus. That you believe the truth about Jesus. And that you have a relationship with God through him. 
If you do, I pray that that's the center of your Christmas. And if you don't, I pray that you would not waste another Christmas without it, but that you would come to Jesus and you would know life. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. And we know ourselves and we know our hearts. Father, we are stubborn and we are stiff-necked. We are prone to be people who at one moment are fearful to look at you and then in the next moment we're arguing with you and we're correcting you. Father, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our rebellion. Father, we thank you that you, the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the self-existent one, desire to have a relationship with your people. That's beyond our understanding, but we believe that it's true because we see it in the scriptures. Father, and I pray that those of us who have gathered this morning would be people who have entered into a genuine, real relationship with you by trusting in Jesus and believing the truth about him. That he is the great I am, the one that you sent to save us from our sins, to bring us back into a relationship with you. Father, I pray for those who are here, for those who may listen online, who do not know you. They do not believe the truth about Jesus. And Father, by your grace, I pray that you would change their hearts. I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them the truth. Father, as we take a moment to sing about you and your glory and your goodness and your greatness, We just want it to be an overflow of what you have done in our lives and what you're continuing to do in our hearts. So, Father, be honored as we worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up, and we're going to sing one.